Well, good morning. I ask you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 19. Just listening to the rustling of the pages there, we realize that we're a people who like the Word of God. We come to church where we study the Word of God, where we preach the Word of God. And um, I think with that, there's sort of this implied thing that we know how to study the Word of God and the importance of doing that. And sometimes it doesn't go quite as easy as we think it should. There was a young man who decided he wanted to study the Word of God and wanted to get God's direction in his life and wasn't quite sure how to do that, so he just grabbed his Bible and he opened it up and it opened up to Matthew 27, 5b, and it read this way. And then he went and hanged himself. He wasn't sure that's really what God would want in his life, so he closed his Bible and he opened it up again and it flopped open to um, Luke 10, 37b, and it said, Go and do likewise. He was certain that wasn't God's will for his life, so he closed his Bible and he opened it up a third time and it popped open to John 13, 27b, and it said, What you're about to do, do quickly. (laughs) Now somehow we come to this book and we have a great admiration for it, great respect for it, great desire for it. We know it's profitable and good, but it's like, wow, do I really know how to study it? Do I know why I need to study it? Do I know why I should spend time in the Word? I, I, I think it's good, but... What do I do with this book? And this big, wonderful book. And sometimes we find ourselves starting off, we start, you know, I'm going to do a New Testament. We go to Matthew 1 and we get to those begat, and we don't even know what a begat is. But we read another begat, another begat. I just don't get it. And somehow we come to the Word of God and it's like, do you really understand the power of the Word of God in our lives? What it can really do for us? And why we need to be in it? It's interesting as... Uh, David writes his song, <clears throat> and he starts to talk about God's revelation. And it's all interesting how he begins the whole thing. He wants to understand that God revealed himself, that, that God's made himself known. And as he begins that, he starts the subject, the very beginning. Verse 1 starts out, the heavens. And he wants us to realize that when we start to understand the heavens, when we find ourselves there at night, and we go out and we look up in the sky and we see the heavens, that there's something there about the heavens that are really important. And what he tells us here, as you look at our text, it says, and the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And that somehow when we look up in the heavens, we see those stars and the moon. We see the sun in the daytime. We see the clouds and all that is there. It's like, wow. The heavens declare, they proclaim, they tell other people about God. And it's interesting what he uses here for the name of God. In the Old Testament, there's three different words for God. Well, four in a sense, what we're going to look at. There's El or Elohim. There's Yahweh, the personal name of God. And there's also Adonai, which means Lord. And what he uses here is just El. The heavens declare the glory of God. Essentially, when you go through Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, the name used for God over and over and over again is Elohim or El. It seems to identify the power of God, the greatness of God, the creator of God of what he does. And when David starts his psalm off, he says, you know, we really want to know God. We really want to understand who he is. And if we go outside and look, we'll see that God has revealed himself through creation. And he describes that creation here. He talks about the heavens. He then continues on. He says their expanse, or NIV has, the skies are declaring the work of his hands. And again, this whole picture that God created things. And with his hands, he molded all the things in the heavens that we see. All the creation was molded by God. But you also get the picture almost like 
God is reaching through creation to reveal himself. It's not just that this is like God, but it's almost like God's reaching through. And when you see creation, you should actually see God is behind all that. He continues on with that creation. Verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 24 hours a day. And then he says, but there is no speech. Nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. And all of a sudden, it's like God speaking, but there's no words. It's as we look out and see, somehow we draw conclusions about who God is. Somehow we see the magnificent creation of God. Somehow we see the power behind the universe. And we surmise there's someone speaking to us, but there's no words. There's no clarity. There's no clear understanding what's here. But, but we understand that there's a God that is out there. There's somebody behind all this, and it speaks to us. By the visual things we see, there's power behind all that we see. He continues on with that sky, verse 4. Their line of the skies has gone out through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the earth. And we hear who God is. This power that sits behind everything. And then he shifts gears. He goes from the idea of going out at night and looking through all the skies, going out in the daytime looking at all the skies. He shifts all his attention to one thing in the universe, the sun. Here's what he says of the sun. Last part of verse 4. In them, that's the skies, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The bridegroom gets ready for his wedding, comes out of his chamber, which brings the joy of life around people, his spouse and all that's taking place. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's a guy who's getting ready to run that marathon. As he gets ready to run the marathon, he's ready to go. He says, the sun is like that, all ready to win the champion of the day. It's rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. He says, we can go out here and look at creation. We go at night and look at all the skies and we have this sense of power behind the universe. We go out in the daytime, we see the sun. And we watch how it rises in the morning and it sets in the evening. We watch how it does it day after day, how it brings warmth and heat to our life, how it causes things to grow. And we sense there's something behind all this. There's somebody behind all this. And we understand that God, the all-powerful, the creator of all things, comes through that creation. New Testament affirms this. Turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans chapter 1. Paul in his writing affirms the same concept. That creation reveals God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. We're waiting for the rustling to stop. Do you hear it? Isn't that a good sound? Isn't that a nice sound? I think they're done. Actually, there's no rustling if you have it on your palm or your iPhone. I just wait to see if it lights up or not. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, here it is, folks, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. New Testament is just affirming this whole concept of, look, we can look and see creation, and we see there's a God, there's somebody there, somebody powerful behind it. Turn over to Acts 14, verses uh, 17 and 18. I'm sorry, 16 and 17. There's another affirmation of the same truth. 
identifying a little different way because it brings it right down to the rain that we see on a daily basis and things that take place. Acts 14, verse 16 and 17. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go on their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God just died down. There's a witness of God in creation. Even down to the rains we get each year. Even the seasons that go through where all of a sudden we expect fruit to come at a different time of the year. He says that's all of creation. And as David starts off, he says, you know, as people, we go out here and we look at creation and we realize God reveals himself through creation. But it doesn't speak. It's not as clear. The details aren't there. Because all we can do is see, but we don't know all things. There's a sense it's sort of a general revelation. Impressions created, but the details are missing. It's a whole idea when all of a sudden you come and visit a church. You arrive in a church and you start seeing people around you. You see somebody with a tying coat on. You see somebody in a dress or a skirt. You see somebody else who may be in a polo shirt and a pair of khakis. See somebody else in a pair of slacks. Or you see somebody else that's in a t-shirt. Somebody in a tank top. Somebody with tattoos. And whatever it is, you look at people and you go, Huh, I think I know something about you. There's just that general revelation. You're not sure of everything about them, but you draw conclusions by just that general sense of things. And then all of a sudden, you start talking with them. As you start talking, you find out what they say. You hear their name. Oh. You hear their occupation, maybe. You hear where they live. You learn something about their spouse or their children. You learn something about their family. And all of a sudden, it's like, huh. I thought I knew who you were in a general way, and I discover there's a lot more knowledge I've gained by you talking with me. And when all of a sudden I hear you talking, it gives me some special insight into who you are. I understand better who you are. I understand the relationship we can have. Where all of a sudden you're at church and they start sharing with you how they came to Christ, how they trusted in Christ on that certain day, how it changed their life. And you realize this is a brother or sister in Christ, which you never knew by just that general observation of seeing them at church. But you only came to know because when they started talking with you and sharing that special words about their life. God does the very same thing with us. He says, when all of us are born, we go out here and look at creation and say, wow, I think there's a God behind all this. There's a power behind all this. There's a creator behind all this. But, but I wonder what he wants me to know about him. And God understands that's exactly how it works which is general revelation, we have an idea of who he is. We have an idea of what his attributes may be, but we never learn anything specifically about who he is and what he does. In order to do that, he gives us special revelation. And David identifies that here in verse 6. In verse 6, when he's talked about in verse 1, the heavens is a subject. We've got to look at the heavens. We realize there's a God. But now what I want you to do is to look at the law. Notice the phrase here, here. Look at your text. The law of the Lord. 
Now, your text there should be all in capitals, that word Lord. He's saying there's something different here. Whereas El, the all-powerful God is creator of all things, when it comes down to this special revelation now, when God's really going to speak to us, it is now Yahweh. He gives you his personal name. You know, folks, I'm God who created all things. But now that I come and give my revelation of who I am, that special revelation, I'm going to tell you who I am. My name is Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. What else does it identify? It identifies this is the one who makes covenant with his people. This is one who's interested in their souls. This is one who's interested in their sin. This is one who wants to be engaged in their life. This is the personal God, Yahweh. And the way he makes that known now is that Yahweh reveals himself through his word. And that all of a sudden, this book becomes a way that God lets us know who he is. Oh, we may have all sometime at a place gone out into nature, a mountain or something, and said, wow, I believe there's a God. But now God comes along and says, you know, I reveal myself as the all-powerful creator God through creation. But you'll ever, never know who I am until you read my word. Because Yahweh, that personal God, reveals himself through his word. I want to make sure we understand what this means. He uses a whole, David uses a whole array of words here. Notice the very beginning of each uh, verse here from 7 to 9. It's the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. He does that six times, giving us six different words to sort of shape or understand. All these things is how God reveals himself. And he wants us to understand it's the Lord. It is Yahweh who does this. Yahweh is mentioned seven times in these verses. The last time he's mentioned is verse 14, where David concludes the whole thing, talking about his Lord, his rock, and his Redeemer. It all comes down to Yahweh wants to understand in this book, this written word, in all the various ways that he can communicate with us. He has revealed himself who he is. He tells us the very nature of this communication. Follow again in verses 7 to 9. He uses all these different words. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true. That's the nature of the word. When we get to this book to realize that's the nature of God's word. It's true. It's perfect. It's right. All those things coming together when we study this book. When God revealed who he is. But then he also tells us the benefits of it. If I read, is it just to know something about God? Is it just to gain knowledge about God? He says, no. When I reveal myself in this book, it has great benefits for you as the one who's reading. Follow again, six things he says. From the law of the Lord that is perfect, what's it do? It's restoring, catch it, ongoing. It's restoring the soul. What's the testimony of the Lord do that is sure? It's making wise the simple. How about the precepts of the Lord, which are right? What do they do? They're rejoicing the heart. What about the commandment of the Lord, which is pure? It's enlightening the eyes. What about the fear of the Lord, which is clean? It's enduring forever. What about the judgments of the Lord, which are true? They're righteous altogether. God reveals and says, look, 
Yahweh reveals himself through his word. Great truth of its nature. But also take note of how it benefits the impact on the life of the believer. All of a sudden there's this restoration. There's this joy. There's this satisfaction. There's this righteousness that comes all flooding into our souls. To encourage and build us up. Isn't it great to know the Word of God can restore your soul? Boy, I, mean, I don't know about you. Don't you go through difficult days? I mean, just exhausting days. Sometimes exhausting weeks. Sometimes exhausting months. Sometimes exhausting years. And somehow you just feel drained from life. And you just want your soul refreshed. And God says, I've spoken to you. I've revealed myself in your word, in, his, in my word, so it can come and restore, replenish, refresh, build up, fill up your soul. That you continue to go on and endure. Isn't it good to know that the word can come along and cause my soul to rejoice? like all the joy I can have in life. When you're working through a difficult decision, uncertain what to do, how to lead your family, what to tell your kids, what you ask your parents, the next decision to make. Lord, I'm not sure what to do to come to the Word of God, which it says it enlightens the eyes that we can see. That's the power of the Word. And God wants us to know He not only revealed Himself in creation, He reveals Himself in His Word which somehow comes up and embraces our soul. So David rejoices this way. Look at verse 10. What's the word like? <laughs> what? Catch this. It is more desirable than gold, not just any gold, much fine gold. Boy, you know, you go around now, I mean, gold's up $1,800 an ounce or whatever. It is. I mean, remember when it used to be $30? Oh, I wish I bought, I wish I bought. It's up over eighteen hundred. I mean, there's these stores all around town now. I mean, old gas stations are now gold places where you're taking your gold and everything. And no matter how much you have, no matter how little it is, I mean, it's worth something. But what they do is they take the gold and they melt it down. You want pure gold? You want that dross to come up to the top? You want to clean the dross off so that you just have fine, pure gold? He says that's exactly what the scriptures are like. It's the most valuable thing you could ever have. How good is it? How good is it? Well, it's sweeter than honey. Not just any honey. Honey that's dripping from the honeycomb. Now, essentially with honey, if you uh, drive around different places, we were up in North Dakota, there were people down in Texas who had their bees. And they paid farmers up in North Dakota to let their bees reside in their fields. You drive by fields and there's just these stacks of beehives. They just look like wooden cases just sitting out in the fields. Because different clover, different grains, make a different taste of the honey. Our cousin up in uh, North Dakota where he farms, he rents it out to people. They put their bees out there each year. And how he gets paid? Honey. Sweet, golden honey. And when they pull those trays out and it's dripping out of there, it's just the sweetness, the fullness, the satisfaction 
of honey. David says, well, that's what the word is. And it just satisfies you. It just tastes so good. It just meets your needs. It's like honey and gold. That's the word of God. And as David starts off here, he says, look, God reveals himself through creation, and God reveals himself through his word. But he shifts once more. The subject was the heavens in verse 1. The subject was the law in verse 6. But look now, I'm sorry, verse 7. Look now at verse 12, I'm sorry, 11, and see who the subject is here. Here's how it reads. Moreover by them, that's the word, that's the scriptures, the commandments and all, your servant is warned. Now he changes the subject. It goes from the expanse, it goes from creation, it goes from the whole idea of the heavens. He moves from the heavens to the word, the law. And now he changes directions again, a new subject. What's the impact of this on your servant? And now he shifts it to where David says, hey, your servant comes to the word, and this word impacts my life. There's something about this book. There's something about these words. There's something about this revelation that all of a sudden your servant has benefits. And he identifies here. Your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great rewards. And he identifies four things here. He goes through and he says, look, when it comes to the Word of God, when we take this book, and this is why it's times we don't like to spend time in it, he says it does two things. This book, when we read it, when we study it, when we examine it, it examines our hearts and it directs our lives. It examines our hearts. How does he say that? Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden sin, and also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. He says, God, in the way I live my life, the things I have done, the things I have said that are sin, hidden from me. I didn't even know I did it. God, you need to equip me from that sin. You need to forgive me from that sin. We all understand this one. This is when a, you know, a family member or friend has the courage to come and tell us that we've wronged them. It's when they realize that there's a brokenness in our relationship that we don't even see. And they come to us and say, you know, Mike, when you made that comment in the hallway at church, that really hurt me. And I sit there and say to her, you know, I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't even realize what I had done. That's hidden sin. And for those of us who are talkers, for those of us who speak, we hurt people with our words, and we don't know it. We make a hasty comment. We make a lighthearted joke. We make an easy cut on an individual in which everybody laughs. And we've wounded, we've hurt an individual. And we've sinned, unbeknownst to ourselves. And the word of God comes and convicts us of that sin and then acquits us, provides forgiveness. He says there's another way it examines us. It's not just of hidden sin. Verse 13, 
It also will keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. This is willful sin. This is intentional sin. This is when we know we're doing something wrong. Oh, we all can sit smugly and think, oh, I would never do that. But for those of us who know 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from all unrighteousness, have at times in our mind thought clearly before we said or did something and thought in ourselves, you know, I know God's going to forgive this after I do it. And we've willfully sinned. I remember as a kid going into the grocery store with my mom and uh, I collected baseball cards. I won most of them in games. I don't know if I ever bought a pack of baseball cards, and this will prove it. I was in the grocery store, and I came out of the grocery store with my mom. We're standing outside, and this is when they used to load your car up. They, the guys would put the groceries in your car and all that stuff. You didn't even bag your own stuff in these days. This is a long time ago. And I'm standing out there, foolish as I was, and I opened up these baseball cards and stuck the bubble gum in my mouth. And my mom said, where'd you get those? From inside the store. Did you pay for this? No. Well, let's go talk to the manager of the store. And I got caught stealing, stealing baseball cards. My mom took me in to see the manager. I still remember it was a Grand Union uh, station. I remember exactly where it was. And I went up to the manager. She made me go to the manager and tell him I stole baseball cards and bubble gum. And the guy looked at me and he said to my mom, he said, it's okay. My mom said, no, it's not okay. So she made me give the baseball cards back. I had to spit out the bubble gum before it lost all the sweetness in it. I got nothing out of it. But that was willful sin. When you cheat on a test, that's willful sin. When you cheat on your income tax, that's willful sin. When you go to the store or you go to the restaurant and they don't charge you for that coffee or they don't charge you for that dessert, and you say, ooh, I made money at that's stealing. That's willful sin. When we say something to somebody, and we know, we know it's going to hurt. That's willful sin. And David says, if I hang out in this book, if it resides in my heart, it'll guard me from willful sin. That's the power of this book. It causes me not to have presumptuous sin and stops me before I ever do it. But he says it not only examines my heart. He wants us to understand here when we look at this book, when we study this word. It also directs our lives. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He says, listen, if I spend time in the word... I understand how it restores my soul. It's got the capacity to start shaping my words of how I talk with people. When I came to Christ, I um, one of the things I enjoyed doing before I was a Christian was, and I was good at this, was um, if we were having a conversation, you know how people make those cuts, they sort of cut you down and it keeps going more as a game. I always got the last one in. I remember as a young Christian, I was coming into a group of uh, 
the believers I hung out with. And um, they were up in the front. They were singing or something. Were, the chairs were set up, and I came up from behind. And uh, Danny was one of the gals in our uh, ministry we were involved in. And I came walking up behind, and she saw me. And whether she intended to whisper or she actually said it loud enough for me to hear, I heard her say this. Oh, no, here comes that Mike Boyle. He frustrates me so much in the way he talks. The words I used. It forced me to start saying, God, can you shape my words that they don't hurt and wound? Proverbs says there's life and death in the tongue. And I think through the death death we bring with our tongue by the words we use with people whether it's the tone of voice whether it's the attitude behind it or the very words himself david says listen if i spend time in the word it has the capacity to shape my words it has capacity to make them bring life and not death he says it not only has the capacity to shape my words my speech It also filters my thoughts. He says this, let the word of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. God, the way I think about things that influence who I am and what I say, God, let it direct my life in such a way that it can filter my thoughts. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says a similar thing. 2 Corinthians 10. Verse 5. And this is showing just the power of the word, the importance of the word, why we put it in our hearts and minds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Catch this. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Wow. How I think that the word of God can filter my thoughts of how I think. That then affects how I live. David works his way through here by God's revelation. And basically putting forth the idea, we study God's revelation because it examines our hearts and directs our lives. Uh, That's why we spend time in this book. Uh, We need to study it. We need to make it part of our life. We need to spend time in the Word. As a new Christian, um, I worked with Campus Crusade, but Navigators uh, was another ministry on our campus. and, And they had an illustration They called it the word hand. And you hold your Bible like this, just like this. And then it lets you realize there's five components to the power of the word of God in your life. The first one by little finger is hearing the word. I need to hear the word. And they would identify it's when you hear it preached. And and, and it gives some strength. But, but, But if I try to hold it all together, that's not a great strength. The second finger is used with the idea of reading the Bible. And it gives you more strength, but the importance of reading the Word of God. If you read the Word of God, it has power in your life. 
It can shape your life. It can direct your life. The third one, though, is studying the Word. And that's the most powerful to hold. If you're going to use two fingers to hold it up, it's studying the Word. And studying is more difficult. It takes more time. When you start thinking about studying the Word of God, there's usually three things you think about. You need to study the Word by making observations. And those are those simple things. When we went through the text this morning and I identified verse 1, the heavens, that's the subject. Verse 7, the law, that's the subject. Verse 12, my servant, that's the subject. Those are just observations, which tells you the whole text is transferring to a new idea just by changing the subject. That's observation. Interpretation is how you take all those pieces and you ask the question, how does it fit together? That's interpretation. But once you get that, It comes down to the application. So what do I do with it? How does it affect my life? So this morning as we talked, you may have application. How does it shape my words when I'm in the Word of God? How does it filter my thoughts when I'm in the Word of God? That's studying the Word. And then it comes down to the fourth one, this one comes down to memorizing the word. All young men finally memorize Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How how does a young man keep his way pure? Verse 9. I treasure the word in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's memorization. But if you struggle with any sin, any worries, any fears, any anxieties, anything that overwhelms you of how you think, you memorize the word. But all of a sudden, when you start wrestling with impatience, the scriptures come to your mind. When you struggle with pride that the verses on humility overwhelm you because you remember them, and they protect us in our walk with Christ. And the final one, that thumb, that's meditation. That's the idea of just thinking about the word, reflecting about the word. So what you read in the morning, that all of a sudden it's like, huh, let me think about this today. Or if you read it at night, it's what you think about before you go to bed. But there's a sense that you reflect and think about the Word of God. All that because what we understand David telling us is the importance of God's revelation. God reveals himself in creation. Yahweh reveals himself in the Word. And as servants, our hearts will be examined. It will direct our lives. But to be followers of Christ that way, we need to be those who actually study the Word of God because it examines our hearts and it shapes our lives. Let's close in prayer. God, what a wonderful revelation you have given us. The power of creation to see how big and powerful you are But God, that you loved us so much that you spoke to us. And in speaking to us, you revealed in special words who you are. What great truths to know about you. All those commandments, those precepts. To know that they're true and righteous. How they're able to refresh us and restore us to give us joy in our life. But all that, Lord, so that your servants can be warned and rewarded. God, make us a people of the book, not just that we carry it around, 
but we actually make it part of our life. A people who actually find our hearts examined by your word and our lives directed by your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.